And all that has been brought upon them as a divine penalty or retribution for their disobedience to God's law as given them through Moses and their awful climactic act, the greatest crime of history in their rejection and crucifixion of him who came to his own and his own received him not his own being his Jewish bread. Now we also reviewed, and I want you to turn back to Romans 11, the 11th chapter, because it's so important for us as Gentiles to realize God's goodness in bringing what we would call great good out of evil, which he has done, and as Paul, uh, uh, we, we studied, did, did this and, and, and this chapter we're going to read verse 11 I say then have they Israel stumbled that they should fall God forbid now here's the reason they stumbled but rather through their fall salvation is common to the Gentiles for to provoke them Israel to jealousy so that's where it's so important for us to realize the goodness of God in the evil that Israel brought upon themselves enabled his plan and purpose to proceed. And that was that the Gentiles should have an opportunity to become a, also a people for his name. Those whomsoever would by faith belief and obedience would enter into his plan of salvation. And that did not begin to come about until the Jew had utterly failed and had entered into uh, a position where they were the recipients and well deserved God's punishment upon them as a nation. The Gentiles, you and I, our ancestors, long time ago, the apostle tells us and we need to realize this that at that time they the Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world but now Christ and his death has opened away the door to salvation to those who would come to God not looking for salvation by works of law but by faith in Christ and his great sacrifice so then God began to take out in Paul's day through his his principal ministration a people from the Gentiles for his name you and I have that hope that he introduced or Christ introduced through the gospel. So we have great reason for thankfulness, don't we? That through their fall, as he says here, salvation is coming to the Gentiles. And we don't want to forget it. Now, we also want to read verse 25 and 26 again. I would not, brethren, ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits. We have no reason to boast. We have reason to simply be thankful. That blindness in part has happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Someday the door will be shut even then to the Gentiles. The last one would have had an opportunity to come in. And thus Christ uh, will have appeared and there is only one thing that remains for him to do in that connection and that is to judge those of his household who have made a covenant with him by being baptized into his name. Now, he goes on to say, and so all Israel, all Israel comprehending both Jew and Gentile in Christ, shall be saved as it is written there, shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, or the descendants of Jacob, Israel. So here again, we have a confirmation of the thought that God had for a long time brought great punishment or affliction on Israel for disobedience, but that in his plan and purpose as set forth in the Old Testament, and that was the only scriptures they had in the days of the New Testament, uh, that his plan and purpose foresaw and prophesied that, his, uh, that there would be ultimately a revival, a restoration of, uh, to his favor in due time after the fullness of the Gentiles had come in and that that restoration he says will be likened to what we read last week life from the dead let's look at verse 15 again we read this at the close <laughs> for if the casting away of them Israel be the reconciling of the world that is the Gentiles entering in what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead and that's what I, this portion of our answer to why watch Israel we again go to the scriptures to see what the apostle had in his mind uh, among other things when he when he made this statement and we have the scriptural answer in a prophecy that was uttered 2,500 years ago approximately uh, by inspiration by the prophet Ezekiel and I hope some of you remember our reading assignment of turning to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel And here we see that Ezekiel was granted the uh, um, prophetic vision of this tremendous event, the revival or resurrection to life of a nation long dead. That was a miracle, or is a miracle. It has been dead spiritually, in God's sight, and politically, as far as uh, it's uh, until recently its place as a sovereign world power those who have been living and there are very few left since the year 1897 and even before 
and we who are alive right now today have been the witnesses of the fulfillment of this chapter up to a point it has not been completely fulfilled but it is a further testimony as to why we should watch Israel and that's the reason we're going to consider we turn to it and we begin uh, reading at the beginning the hand of the Lord was upon me Ezekiel and he carried me in the spirit of the Lord now here Ezekiel is under what we call a spiritual um, the spiritual power of God in which he is permitted to see in his mind's eye a moving picture so to speak of a tremendous happening taking place which wouldn't take place for many centuries but, he, but he's given the spirit of the Lord and he sees this as a vision carried me out in the spirit and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. Well, this isn't, we would begin to immediately visualize this if we're, if we're anxious to know what this means. Here's a large number of bones of long dead people. It's full of bones. And they are the figurative and literal remains of a slain people in a lifeless and hopeless state all jumbled up they were very dry bleached bleached white in their in their condition and then a question is asked to Ezekiel in the third verse we notice he said unto me son of man can these bones live well, they didn't know the answer. And he said, O oh Lord God, thou knowest. He, he recognized that God could give life to them, so God alone knew whether they would live. Now, the fact that Ezekiel here, again, I don't know whether you've ever noticed this or not, the prophet Ezekiel is often spoken of as son of man. Who else bore that title in his lifetime? Right. Christ. And in this and in many other ways, he is a type in his ministry of Christ. He's referred to as Son of Man many, many times. And in this position, we shall see that he is associated with the resurrection. Who is the resurrection and the life? The Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So we have a connection here in this title that he bears. So he answers, Lord God, thou knowest the answer to this question. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when a, when a, when a prophet prophesies, he testifies as to uh, what the Creator, in this case, was about to demonstrate, and this is the testimony of Ezekiel right here in this chapter. Uh, that he is about to demonstrate concerning these uh, these bones and what's going to happen to them what is going to take place of such a marvelous nature 
And so, in continuing the reading, uh, God continues to speak to him. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. And say, uh, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. There is a divine declaration of a miracle about to occur in vision. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. There is God's pronounced determination to do a very marvelous thing concerning this valley of all mixed up bones of slain people. Nothing very difficult about this. But it's full of meaning, particularly this next verse. So I prophesied, I testified, this is Ezekiel's words, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shape and the bones came together bone to his bone. Now, Ezekiel obeyed God. He prophesied, he testified. And as he did so, tremendous events began to occur among these bones. What was the first thing? A noise. And then a shaking. Well, those are two words of real meaning and are very uh, very indicative of something tremendous at work among them. A noise. Now that Hebrew word in the original means first to call out, to cry out, to voice to give voice to, or to sound out as of a trumpet. That's the meaning of that word noise. It's used that way several times in Scripture. Now, let's see about this trumpet, how it was used to sound as of a trumpet. That takes us back to Israel again. It's concerning Israel. Will you turn to Numbers, the 10th chapter? And we're going to see how the trumpet sound, what it was for in the days of Israel's beginning, why it was used, and what it signified. Numbers 10, uh, beginning at verse 1. These are, are, are divine instructions to Moses. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, a, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that they mayest use them for the calling of the assembly, for, and for the journeyings of the camp. At their sound, various responses were to take place, various movements were to take place. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the uh, tabernacle of the congregation. It was then a call to assembly of a congregation, among other things. And if they blow with but one trumpet, then the princes, which are the heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves to thee. The princes were to take the first action. The leaders, the heads of each tribe, 
were to, uh, to, to first gather themselves together uh, for a purpose. When ye blow an alarm, is another way, then the camps that lie on the east shall go forward. This was a signal for movement then. Go forward. And when ye blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south shall take their journey, and they shall blow an alarm for their journeys. You see how orderly this was to assemble this host to begin to, for their daily journeys, or when they were to make a movement, or when they were to assemble at the door of the congregation. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. Uh, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance. This was a thing to be observed throughout their generations. And if you go to war, now here's another, another uh, use of them. In your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. And ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Also, in the day of your gladness. Now here was a, a distinct change in their use, purpose. In the days of your gladness, in your solemn days, and in the beginning of your months, ye shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God, I am the Lord your, your God. So these trumpets, the sounding of the trumpet then was a very, very necessary and important thing in their service to God, wasn't it? And used in a variety uh, of ways, principally for uh, their daily assembly. Let's remember that. Now, we also have a second thing that was to take place, don't we? A shake. Go back to that 37th chapter, it was to be a noise, and a shake. Now that word in the original Hebrew is, uh, means just what it says. It means a movement, uh, a commotion. That's the real meaning, a commotion. A rattling, bones rattling, a rushing, and it also is used to describe an earthquake, <coughs> which is, of course, violent shaking. Now, isn't that an exact description of, of, of bones in a movement, in a valley, dry? Wouldn't there be a shaking, a commotion as a result of uh, the word of the Lord in this matter? It's exact description. Of a, of, a, of, a, of a heterogeneous mass of, of mixed up bones. But under the power of God, each bone belonging where it should is assembled so as to form individual skeletons. The, the rib cage would be joined to the backbone. The neck extending up and a skull, the proper skull being fastened to, to the neck. The proper thigh bones and leg bones and feet bones all joined together properly in order for this mass of dry bones to be assembled 
into a large number of individual skeletons, frameworks that we all have for our bodies. And that's what was Ezekiel was seeing in this vision. And the noise, the sound of the trumpet, preceded the call uh, or the assembly of these bones, this commotion that resulted. And let's remember these things because they are they're very vital. We're going to understand this. Now, let's go back to the noise, the voice, the uh, the uh, alarm, or the call to assembly, the movement that uh, the people were to engage in for whatever purpose. It was to be an orderly movement, a call to assembly mainly. Well, that movement and the fulfillment of this scripture right here has been going on for over a hundred years among the Jewish people. We can go back as far as the year 18 and uh, let me see, I, I think I have it down here. 1862, over 100 years ago, there was a, a booklet written by a man named Moses Hess, a German Jew, I believe, entitled Rome and Jerusalem. And it was a, a setting forth of the a scattered state of Israel and their persecution under the leading Christian so-called body of people in the world who occupied uh, another city in the Italian peninsula and he was he was he was uh, drawing the Jews attention to the fact that Jerusalem was their their city and their only hope but they were cut off from it it was under the hands of the Gentiles, the Turks in particular, held the city, and they weren't free to go without considerable difficulty. But there was a voice. And then in the year 1886, I'm giving just the highlights of this, a man named Leo Pinsker, a Russian Jew, 1882, actually, he wrote a book that further stirred them very much, called auto-emancipation. And that word, of course, means self-deliverance, self-seeking for freedom, auto-emancipation. And that stirred the Jews. And his, his uh, theme was that if we're going to ever get out from under our persecuted, scattered state, we're going to have to help ourselves. We're going to have to take action. We're the people are going to have to do something. And we're going to get busy. Well, as a result of his uh, booklet being circulated, particularly in Russia, where millions of Jews were and still are, there began a movement back to the land of France. The first collective group of Jews assembled and started their journey to Israel. It wasn't Israel in those days. It was under the Ottoman Empire 
and called, as many of us remember, Palestine. But they knew that was their homeland. They knew that was their place of safety, of regeneration. And so that was called the first aliyah, the first going up in 1886 that occurred. And they established little Jewish settlements there. And some of you sisters who went to Israel maybe went to one of them, Pitatikba, that's the Jewish word that was a little settlement called the Gate of Hope. And there was another one established not far away called Rishan Zion, meaning the first to Zion. And so there began a movement, a, 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 a self-emancipation, a self-deliverance among the Jews beginning in Russia. They called themselves lovers of Zion. And there was a Viennese Jew named Nathan Birbaum who wrote something about this, and he gave it a name. It's the name it, it is called today. He called it Zionism, the Zionist movement. He's the one that named it, a Jew, being a Jew. And so began something that the world had never seen before, a going back to, to Israel of, of people seeking for deliverance from a scattered state. But it was very, very meager and they suffered a lot and many of them died because the land was so desolate either through dryness desert or through swampy marshland that thousands of them but not thousands because there were thousands there they died from malaria and the accompanying diseases so they're going back was a struggle in which many of them perished in 1894 however this this thing was gathering strength and a very unlikely Jew, he was a newspaper correspondent and very wealthy. He was a Hungarian by birth named Theodor Herzl. And he lived in a, worked for a newspaper in Vienna, Austria. And he published a book. I'm not going to give you the background of that, another story. A book called The Jewish State published in 1894 and it set in motion as never before it stirred the Jewish people as never anything had before uh, concerning the Zionist movement which aimed at the securing of Palestine as a homeland for scattered Jews and this led and here's where the trumpet sounded very loudly this led in 1897 to the assembly of Jews from all over the world, not all, not all Jews from all over, but they sent representatives to Switzerland to the first Zionist Congress in which there was a full discussion of the Jewish problem and of the solution to their problem, which centered on the security of a national home for the Jewish people, particularly hopeful that they could get it somehow in the land that had been promised to Abraham. 
And here was the shaking then of these bones as nothing else had ever happened before. Here was the call to assembly, the trumpet sound, the assembly, their discussion, and then their efforts to attain this. Theodore Herzl wore himself out. He died at the age of 44 in an attempt to uh, get this thing on its feet. But it, it's a significant thing and very interesting to me that it's recorded of him. He kept a diary. And it's recorded that on the first night following the day of the first discussions of the Zion, first Zionist Congress, he wrote something in this diary that was a prophecy. He didn't realize how right he was. He said, today, I'm quoting this from memory. I think it's pretty well accurate. Today I founded the Jewish state. It may be within five years, certainly within 50 years, that the world will see the establishment of the Jewish state. 50 years from, 90, from 1897 brought us, brings us to the year in which many of us were alive, and we know what happened. The United Nations, who were considering the problem, due to the fact that Britain was to give up its mandate, made a, a resolution, passed a resolution, that the land of Palestine was to be divided into two parts. One part for the Jews, and another for the Arabs. That was their declaration. A Jewish state and an Arab state. Exactly 50 years after Herzl made that declaration in his diet. Rather significant, isn't it? Rather interesting. The trumpet had sounded and it was producing results. The noise was stirring Israel and the shaking was stirring Israel as never before in over in about 1900 years. Now, the Jews welcomed this, although it was, they weren't happy over it, they welcomed it, because it gave them the opportunity for a homeland for the first time in 1900 years, a land of their own. The Arabs, they would have nothing whatever to do with the idea, and they declared they'd fight against it in their letter to the last man. Their answer was a resounding no. Well, when the British marched out the next year, May 14, 1948, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the Jewish leaders met in a, a museum. They didn't have a, a government building. They met in a museum in Tel Aviv. And David Ben-Gurion, you remember, who was one of the leaders in establishing this uh, Jewish state, he pronounced the fact that the state of Israel, he declared the state of Israel, had now, at that moment, come into being. There was a noise and a shaking that the, that the Jewish people had never known before. Bone had come to bone. 
the skeletons were formed, the framework was formed. God's hand had been wonderfully in evidence in all that had gone before. Ezekiel's prophecy was being fulfilled by those of us who were alive to see that, most of us were. We ought to know what it means. The time to favor Zion was come. But there were still greater things lying ahead. Israel, that people, had yet to be prepared for something that they were not in shape for at the time of the declaration of that state. For over 30 years, that little state's been fighting for its life. That's a matter of history. So, but surely that noise and its shaking had produced some remarkable results if God's hand was manifesting. Now we look at verse 8. Here we have our skeletons formed already, the noise and the shaking. But verse 8 says, uh, uh, verse 6, I will lay sinews upon you and bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put bread in you and you shall live. And verse 8 says, When I beheld, lo, the sinews and flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. So on this framework of bone coming to bone and skeleton framework, there came uh, flesh and muscles, and it was covered with skin. And they looked like people. They look like a large number of people in this vision. And so we see these skeletons then assuming a position that they had never been in before. But we notice there was no breath in them. It takes the breath of life to produce life, doesn't it? Now that's not natural life. We're not dealing with natural things here, are we? We're dealing with spiritual things and uh, miraculous things and God's working among a nation to restore them to life, life from the dead. So it's not natural life we're thinking of. All living creatures have that. It's spiritual life, life in God's sight, life from God that results in a people knowing God, the true God, and acknowledging His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. That's the kind of life that uh, God brings into an individual or a mass of individuals as a result of becoming a people of faith and obedience to Him. And that's the kind of life that Israel had not had in them at the time this eighth verse was uttered. They are not properly worshiping God yet, and that's yet to come. This life does not exist as a, 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 at present in Israel. <coughs> they are in Israel still in a condition of unbelief. And they acknowledge, many of them, their leaders, Begin happens to be an, uh, an exception. They don't, they don't think of themselves in God's sight as he pronounces them to be. They, they're back there in unbelief. They're without spiritual life. The breath of life that God intends them to have has not yet been breathed into them. And something very dramatic must happen before they can be as God will have them be.
And so we look at verses 9, 10, and 11 to see what happens in this vision. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Now you'll notice there, uh, margin says breath, so we're still dealing with the breath of life, spiritual life. Son of man, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus said the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain. Now remember, they're, they're still lying down there, bodies uh, on skeletons, and uh, but there's no, no life in them that God is looking for and intends to bestow. Breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet. Now they're standing up, an exceeding great army. And he said unto me, Son of man, these bones, and here he identifies them, and there's no question about who they are. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, and this is what they said before all this took place, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we're cut off from our parts. They, they, they have been saying that for scores of generations as to their hopeless state when they were in that valley of dry bones of Ezekiel. So, there, so then, uh, in uh, consideration of that point, as the result of the breathing upon this lifeless uh, mass of, of, of skeletons and bodies, life, they began to live and stand upon their feet, clearly identifying, being identified in the prophecy of the whole house of Israel who have for centuries often despaired uh, of hope in that scattered nationally dead condition. True, the state of Israel has come into being, and that's the most important event that has occurred up to this time. And anybody that isn't aware of its future meaning is in ignorance. But this is only an earnest or an assurance, or we might call it a guarantee, of the beginning of the revival of a nation whose spiritual life is yet to be breathed into them. This can only occur when a remarkable further assembly, remember there's only over three million people there now, there's 14 million scattered around, we've read scriptures that testify there's to be a second exodus of Jews from all over the world that will return to the land. And until that second exodus has taken place and the whole house of Israel is there, this breath of life will not enter into them. There will be no marvelous or dramatic event that will cause it to enter into them. We might remind ourselves that that, that second exodus is to be because it, 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 it is a remarkable, a remarkable thing that must occur yet. Uh, Isaiah 11, 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people that shall be left. And then he names several ancient names of nations where they're scattered. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and I shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is a complete coming back. Uh, and verse 16 and there shall be a highway for the remnant of these people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel and here's the, uh, the type 
that in that day when he came up out of the land of Egypt. That is why it's called the second answer. Well, uh, Zechariah 10 even mentioned David, which uh, is the name, that was the first exodus, and the second one uh, is even mentioned in that chapter. That's correct. Uh, Egypt is mentioned there. Now we're going, we're going to try to cover, we haven't got much more time, we're going to try to cover up to a stopping point, and we'll read 12 through 14. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves. So there's no question about them being a dead in a dead state. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, I am the Lord when I opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And and shall put my spirit in you. Here's the breathing into them of, uh, of life, spiritual life. And I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, God says he will open these figurative graves this nation, dead nation is in. And this causes a political restoration of the returning millions of Jews scattered throughout the world today to the promised land and a massive and complete second exodus. Now these graves spoken of here, they're not just any kind of ordinary grave. The, ori the original Hebrew word for grave, where everybody goes to, is Sheol. Now, that isn't the word here. This word is Kiber. And it means a, a sepulcher, a burial tomb of a special kind, or one which could be called a memorial place of burying, or a place of remembrance. Now, the Jewish people, as we said, I think, last week, is one of the oldest nations in the world. They've, they've seen many, many nations die and never uh, again be heard of. They're still with us, although uh, various efforts have been made to, to wipe them out, even in our own time. But until Christ's second advent, and the beginning of his revelation to the Jews, to Judah at Jerusalem, their, as their Messiah and their deliverer and their acknowledgement of him in grief and mourning, they will still remain a spiritually lifeless, lifeless but resurrected people. They have a state of their own. But that state is not the one or in the condition God is looking for. They trust in their own power to save themselves. Auto-emancipation. Remember that title of that book written by Pinsker? Let's look for a close, if we have time, at the 20th chapter, and we're going to see what God says to them. 20th chapter of Ezekiel, beginning at verse 34. I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face 
Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, said the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, the rod symbolizing affliction. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. They've never entered the covenant spoken of here, and we're going into that next week, Lord willing. And I will purge out from among you the rebels. <laughs> and them that transgress against me and I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn and they shall not enter into the land of Israel and ye shall know that I am the Lord so then we have some great shaking and noise taking place and yet to take place and next week we'll come back to the dwelling and consider the further promise of prophecy as in Ezekiel 37 beginning of verse 15